0: Welcome to the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen, where we address innovation and the law from three angles, people, technology and business. My name is Leonard van Rompuy and I'm joining here uh, you today with Professor Alexandra Andov, who is in currently residing in Perth, Australia. Good morning, good evening um, to you, Alexandra. Today we would like to talk about computational logics and we want to dig a little bit deeper compared to the previous episode. And so we're hopefully going to talk about a lot of interesting stuff, but uh, hang on to your, to your seats, it's uh, going to fly a little bit higher than, um, than the previous one, but we'll make sure you can, uh, you can keep following. So Alexandra, tell us a little bit more about what we're going to talk about today, please
1: thank you uh, and hi everyone it's uh by the way it's nice to see you it's a little bit later in the afternoon here um there's a few hours difference um but um yeah good that we have all these new technology that we can use in order to record ourselves and talk and see each other so it's really nice to see you all right then so so today is Lenat has mentioned we are going to do a little bit of a deep dive into computational logic. Um, and what does that mean? So we'll talk a little bit more about how computers think, how they work, how they actually apply their thinking also to law. Um, we will also talk about a new field of law that is called computational law. Um, and there we'll try to distinguish between code law as code and law as data and given that this is an an extremely fascinating topic um that might be there were too maybe too too abstract for for some some of our listeners um we would like to include a particular discussion that everyone is today talking about and share with you a bit more about chat gpt and how that particular tool works and why it is breaking all the records and whether it's actually coming after our jobs, um, as lawyers, um, and how come that it passed the bar exam in the United States and and all of these things. But maybe Leonard, you asked me the first question is like, okay, so, so what is computational logic? Um, and you know, me that I always i uh, like to start from Adam, which might not be always the best, but, you know, just hang on with me. I, I'll try to debrief. Ultimately, if you think about computational logic from a historical perspective, um, as we know it today, it probably goes back to 17th century. And then it evolved substantially over the 20th century in close symbiosis, ultimately, uh, with all the evolution that computers gone through and all the technology surrounding computers, so it went hand in hand. Um, And we also previously discussed that many modern concepts, a.k.a. those that we consider really, really modern, have actually been around for some time. And and when it comes to computational logic, it has been part of the the general mathematical uh, logic, um, more abstract as it is.
0: Um, and then, yeah, because we've been doing computational logics way before we actually had things to compute with, right? before we had computers.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we did the math, right? So computing it ultimately ultimately made certain mathematical kind of applications and and actions and functions. So we had done it before all of the fancy computers. And again, going back in the history, ultimately computers, have their names because they originally were intended to be used for computing and helping people with computing, mm-hmm. with large computing or computational tasks.
0: So not the other way around.
1: Exactly. But if we are to describe or define or, you know, kind of, yeah, tell a little bit more about what computation logic is, then we would go back and say, well, it actually. It would conclude that it's a complex field that attempts to navigate through logical methods and argument patterns of computational technology and its diverse applications okay so if we try to say it in simple terms ultimately computation logic is an exercise through which a computer processes varies data based on algorithms um, they represent a set of rules uh, for getting a specific output from a specific input. Right. So, and now if we try to compare this to, let's say, brain, how does a brain work and compute? And I wonder whether you, our dear listeners, actually have ever thought about, you know, because we speak so much about how, how computers work, but how our brain works. Have you thought about it, Lona, how our brains work?
0: Yeah, a little bit. Um, especially when I dose it with alcohol. I wonder how it works after that. But uh...
1: <laughs> Yeah, and and also don't forget that like the field of neuroscience and all the science that is connected to brain is also fairly young. It's maybe younger than the entire computational law per se. So, so that's a little bit also sometimes surprising, I think.
0: But anyway. What we call, um, what we call neuroscience today, a few hundred years back, we called uh, philosophy of mind. There you go. The same way that what we call IT today, we used to call computational logic, we used to call um, logics, we used to call uh, ethos and logos and uh, and philosophy back in the uh, In the Greek times, right? There's a lot of fields like this that uh, have a modern application, but actually, originate um, the history of the knowledge originates way back into uh, base philosophy uh, concepts and questions.
1: But then, don't you think that all of the ultimately all of the great sciences that we have today already started with philosophy because people start philosophically talked about it until the moment that science or technology got to the place (coughs) in space. Where we could actually do some kind of a more exact research.
0: Absolutely, yeah. On a lot of things, it's uh, even biology. You know, you 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 tread back to the uh, cataloging of species that um, Aristoteles was doing. So it's um, in a lot of ways, philosophy was the, the original uh, content, the, um, the original MC in the in the in the place. Yeah. But uh, yeah, tell me more. Tell me more about my brain. You made me curious now.
1: Okay. So if we think about human brain, so according to the most recent studies, and we'll see, you know, what new studies will bring, but a brain has about 86 billion neurons. And where each neuron can have tens of thousands of synapses. So these connections, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what synapses do, ultimately creating connections and communications between these neurons into trillions, really, right? So billions and then thousands. So we are somewhere around trillions of different synapses that we can have. And ultimately, when we learn something, when we memorize something, even as simple as someone's name, we form connections between neurons in the brain, right? So we form this synapses. And these synapses create new circuits between nerve cells, essentially, ultimately, we're mapping our brain. And the sheer number of possible connections gives the brain unfathomable flexibility. Each of the brain's 100 billion nerve cells can have 10,000 connections to other nerve cells, which, if you think about it, is really a powerful machine, probably more powerful than the majority of the computers out there and guess what those synapses get stronger or weaker depending on how often we are exposed to an event so for instance the more we are exposed to an activity if we are learning languages if we are learning how to play piano and practicing a specific attitude hundreds of times the stronger the connection so the less exposure obviously means weaker the connection so this is for instance why for, for, for many of the people it's very hard, including myself, to remember things like someone's name if I just hear it once. So therefore you have all of these tools to ultimately kind of try to remember the name more and try to use the name. So if someone, if you are introduced to someone, you know, you are kind of the technique um that I've been reading about is to actually say their name again. So if we are like, oh my name is Lena, oh Lona it's very nice to meet you, Donat. You know, oh, you have such a great name, Donald. And then try to connect the name to something that is already in your mind. So, you know, like Da yeah, Vinci.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. And then there is the synopsis. Yeah. And it's hard, it's stronger and more powerful than other synopsis. And then I'll remember that Lonad is Lonad next time I see him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I what I read about this this trick of uh remember people's names. Is that you want to the, the more shocking, or gruesome, or even sexual, the the more like you know extreme kind of association you can make between someone's name, and a mental image you create about that name, the stronger that link will be. So, if you if you if you if you find someone and you identify a very peculiar um aspect of their face or of their body or you know they have a, a weird t-shirt or something that and you and you make a you know a very uh, obscene uh, association between the na- that person's name, that specific detail on their visual appearance, and um, another element that helps you remember the name. The, the more obscene, the more extreme the association of, of ideas, the, the likelier you are to remember their, their names, yeah, so you can imagine like someone crawling out of their nose nostrils if they have big nostrils or something like that. Uh-huh, like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, if you think I have a big nose, you would imagine him uh, crawling out of my mouth or 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 something alien style uh, out of my chest. I don't know I...
1: <laughs> okay. No, but let's go back from Leonard and DiCaprio to, to, to computational thinking. And I was wondering, Leonard, because you know, you have such a great experience and, and you've been doing lots of research with AI, if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, we speak about how computers work and how brain works, but how was the down distinction between a particular technology like AI and how they and how AI systems perceive the world vis-a-vis let's say human brain?
0: Well, I think the uh, first thing that's interesting to say about that topic is that deep learning, uh, the specific like subset of machine learning, it really works like they really try to emulate the way uh, neurons function uh-huh. by having like multiple layers of nodes and pieces of information that the software can identify in a data set. And then it um, the software creates connections between those different nodes in a very uh, dynamic way. Uh, dynamic way. So in a sense it's acting a little bit like the neurons that try to find connection with the neighboring the next neighboring neurons in order to be able to make the difference between, I don't know, the road and the, and the pavement in a, in a video. And uh, if, you, if you look at that in, in practice, like what's the difference between um, a person and a robot uh, perceiving the world and evolving in the world? Um, let's imagine the following, uh, scenario um, so a human uh, person drives a garbage truck and while they're driving they stop at uh, the red light um, and they drive their trash collecting vehicle to pick up trash and let's imagine a robot that does exactly the same drives around, stop at the red light picks up trash so what's the difference between a person doing this and a robot doing this um, well we perceive the architecture of the world. We see the road. We see the, um, the, 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 the the red light. We see people. We see like the physical world. That's the that's what we call like the architecture. We see the wall, and we know that the wall you can't go through. You know that's that's an element of the of the real physical world. The same way that uh, a safe makes it uh, uh, hard to you know you can't if you hide something in a safe. And it's hard to access. It's the same kind of, um, of, of thinking there. So we perceive the architecture of the world. We know that we can't drive through the wall. We know that we have to stay on the lane. Uh, there's a red light on the, on the way. And we, we stop at the red light because we know there's a rule that uh, to stop. It's expected of us. And other people around us are going to behave the same way. Uh, and we know that they know there is a rule. And we know they know we know there is a rule. Okay. Um, so th- this behavior is expected of us because of the red light. And then finally, we have a professional mission to pick up that trash, which will bring value to us in the form of paychecks. Now, let's look at what happens, you know, in, for, from, from the robot's perspective. The robot perceives the architecture of the world. That's why we, build, uh, machine, we implement machine learning into, um, into robots, because it gives them the ability to, um, to see the world. As it gives a computer vision. So they see the world, they see the architecture. They don't drive into the wall because they know it's impossible to drive through a wall, more or less. And they also stay on the lane because you know, part of their software uh, allows them to identify the lane and knows that they need to, to stay on it. It stops at the red light. But it stops at the red light, because the red light is a sign to stop. It's not a rule for a robot. It's part of the world it lives in. The same way it knows it can't drive through a wall, it knows it has to stop at a red light. But it's not a legal norm for it. It's an architectural norm. Uh, It's like, for for a robot, um, the red light is a sign to stop the same way that clouds in the sky indicate the possibility that it is going to rain, it's a sign of a potential uh, a follow-up. It's not. It's not a rule. It's not a norm. The same way that you know it sees trash, and that's a sign to perform the behavior picking up the trash. Bad. So this is to say that there is only architecture in a computer's mind. It does not see a difference between the physical world and legal norms and social norms, market norms, the value that is associated with the work done. It only sees architecture. So that would be the main difference for it. Uh, uh, law is as constitutive of the world as walls are. There's no difference. So that's that. I think that's the main difference between the way a computer uh, robot is able to perceive the world from the way our brains are able to perceive the world. Everything flows from the architecture.
1: Okay. And then, you know, speaking about this, that, you know, that ultimately, and I think this is important to remember when we speak about all of these fancy tools that are out there, that ultimately the the way how the computer understands the law, which they actually don't understand, right? but how they apply it or how they would synthesize it or whatever they would do with the law or the rules depends on the architecture. How we design it,
0: right? Yes, yes.
1: And actually, this moves us to another point towards the computation law, which is a new field of law that thinks about and analyzes the way how Ultimately we can use this computational logic and thinking and apply it on a law or use it for more traditional activities that are present in a law. So for instance, legal reasoning, planning, regulatory analysis, compliance review, where, where we could use computer to, to carry out certain tasks that we used to do, but maybe because of this, if we create this architecture, the computer can be much quicker and more maybe exact than we, but how, how can we design the the architecture where both the technology and the lawyers or whoever is applying the law, if we really think about the legal order can actually collaborate and work. So my question is. You know, because you speak very eloquently about, you know, how the robots perceive it and so on. And I sometimes wonder with all of the nuances that the law has, right? Because the law is not just the rule and we can move to this a little bit later on, but it has these nuances. And I wonder whether we can truly translate these nuances into the architecture within which the technology would operate.
0: I think that some of these nuances we can put in the, the system. I think it's possible. Okay. Um, but uh, we should just always remi- uh, remember that uh, some of these nuances we won't be able to put in. There are some aspects of the law that just can't be replicated by a robot. For instance, anything that requires faith in what you're saying if you're making an official statement, if you're swearing, for example, when you're, when, when when judges in some countries are um, they're sworn to office, right? They uh, they accede to their their status of judge by swearing an oath that they will applaud the law and the constitution and whatever, and that's that's a legal requirement. That's a piece of law. But for this to be effective, for this swearing of the oath to be effective, it requires that the person that hears the, the oath has faith that you know what you're talking about and that you understand what you're swearing to. If a robot could definitely swear an oath, but it wouldn't understand that it is swearing an oath or that um, it, it does not expect the person that witnessed its oath to um, think that the robot is understanding what it is swearing to. <clears throat> so on that aspect, that kind of aspects of the law would not would be very difficult to replicate because they're intimately tied to the notion of humans functioning together. Now, I don't think, you know, it's just an example, of course. We're not like expecting to have robots swear uh, oaths and so on. But it just shows that some things can definitely not be computed um, because they require like a specific aspect of of trust and understanding that we live in this normative world and so on. But there's definitely technologies that can be used for legal analysis um, that uh, can be used to facilitate the work. And, you know, of course, we have like plenty of startups and uh, companies in Denmark who, who do that. Um, it's technologies like smart contracts that automate um, uh, contract contracts, uh, um, some specific contractual benchmarks and uh, and and um, and actions. It's document processing software that analyzes contracts or policies or statements to point out if there are uh, problems with it or if, if something is missing in the contract. And like to be very concrete, there's a company called HyperContracts that automates um, uh, complex hyper complex uh, contracts so that they're um the, the legal team and the various uh, uh, <clears throat> relevant departments in the company can follow the development of the contract and remember all the steps and all their obligations in terms of payments, of, uh, of overdues, of sanctions and so on. Um, another company that develops uh, such a, technolo- a technology like a document processing software is Mygon in, um, in Stockholm. And essentially what they, they had is that they had lawyers code, uh, they had lawyers um, label contracts, um, uh, specifically data processing um, agreements. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, they would label that this part of the contract is good, this part of the contract is bad, this part of the contract is necessary. And like digesting, they fed all this data to a deep learning algorithm that was then able to review other deep um, um, data processing agreements to, to show if they're, um, if they're missing anything and so on. So there's definitely some interesting uses we can do with, uh, with, uh, with technologies that are based on computational logics with regards to the law.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes back ultimately if we, so so these are the practical uh, applications where we see really computational law coming to terms, but there is actually also a theory that is being developed in a sense and seeing law either as a code, so you are coding, which for instance, the law as code aims to model the law as a set of formal rules and possibly automate their applications or enforcement. So be that a smart contract, right? So if this happens, then another action will take place, and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Or we can so see. So that's then, very much uh, the
0: the smart contract, right? Example. Yes. That's law as code.
1: Exactly. Right. So where we can actually really see the 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 rule as a code that we can easily transplant into some kind of a technology that will carry out the individual phases when and if they occur. Right. Um, And then the other part is seeing law as data. Yeah. Right. Where we get different kinds of of data and we are able to, to correctly, and oftentimes it's not always correct, but but kind of see value that they have.
0: Yeah, like the example for the the data prese- the the document processing software, right? Exactly. It's using a large database. It has learned from it's been exposed to data, it has learned from data what it can or cannot do um, based on on that data and what is a good output, what is a likely output and then it can associate like percentages and and so on of success and and, um and correctness to 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 various uh, input um, and there's there's a lot of work that's being done at the moment in natural language processing there's lots of development with chat GPT for instance that yes. are really making technology more able to give feedback based on language prompts and you know now you can, um, you can ask uh, ChatGPT lots of stuff. Um, I had a little fun this morning with ChatGPT and um, I, I went and I asked it if it was compliant to the upcoming European Union Artificial Intelligence Act uh, on high-risk uh, technology. And it was actually making a, you know, decently clever legal argument about the fact that it was not subject to the AI act simply because the company OpenAI was not located in the European Union and there, therefore was not subject to EU regulation and i retorted back to it but you are providing service to me and i am in the European Union you haven't like you haven't like segmented out your the European Union for from your service providing therefore uh-huh. uh, you are subject, you would be subject to the EU AI Act. And at that point it said, oh, thank you for pointing that out to me. You are right, I, I correct myself, uh, and so on. But then it started saying, uh, even though the company would be, um, because we're providing service in the EU, we might have some transparency obligations to uh, comply with. However, I would not qualify as a high-risk artificial. I'm unlikely to qualify as a high-risk artificial intelligence following the regulation. So that was like, you know, I've met uh, law students who didn't provide as good a uh, legal argument as um, as, that, uh, as that robot. So that was actually very, uh, very informative.
1: Yeah, I think that... You know, there is a lot of talks now about this chat GPT and and being able to pass bar exams, for instance, in in U.S. But there is, totally, you know, talking now and being now in Perth, in in Western Australia, there is also an ongoing uh, discussion here in Australia, because now the, the semester is going to start at the end of February. It's like, how do Australian universities need to address this? And whether there is a need to change, uh, for instance, exam forms, and because we know that, for instance, just ChatGPT is pretty good in writing a blog or short kind of essay and, and things like that. And by the way, I actually my uh, exam that that uh, I had with my students in December, I, I always have as part of the exam—not it's not the whole exam—but one third of the exam, and one third of the grade is for them to write an essay. And I have no doubt that because the exam was in December, so it was after the the ChatGPT was actually put online. That some of them might have actually used ChatGPT as as a, as a source of, um, yeah, inspiration at least.
0: And also, you would uh, <clears throat> they could have a um reviewed part of the of their answers because they need to code right they need to show code on your on on your exam and it would make sense that they would have been exposed to chat gpt because it is the digital lawyer course after all but um yeah uh, that was a great
1: no and and uh, so so you had this type of a fun i had different type of fun so i asked chat gpt what were the three main limitations that it had and listen to this lack of common sense reasoning
0: was the first one so you actually act you actually asked chat gpt what are your limitations yes okay okay right
1: so lack of common sense reasoning chat gpt has been trained on a massive amount of text but it lacks the ability to apply common sense Right? This again tells you about the limitations of the technology. And by the way, I also read, because I was doing a little bit of research about this ChatGPT thingy, that the, you know, the entire Wikipedia, or or however we pronounce it, Wikipedia or Wikipedia only forms 3% of all of the data that has been poured into ChatGPT. So you can imagine what amount of information is actually there. Then funnily enough, it says, to limited knowledge. <laughs> so although it has a lot of information, its knowledge is limited. And I think this is extremely important to kind of emphasize because for instance, it actually might give you a wrong answer, even though, you know, you might think that it will know the most recent and accurate data because, you know, timestamps and whatnot, not necessarily. And then the third is the lack of consistency. Yeah. Because it's based on statistical patterns in its training data, it might produce some inconsistent or nonsensical responses when, for instance, it encounters out-of-distribution inputs. And plus, it also is aware of its bias responses due to the biases present in the training data.
0: That's nice. I wish that uh, human academics were as uh, modest, aware. as uh, and, aware, yeah. you know, like if I could boast that uh, I knew the whole of uh, of Wikipedia and still think I have limited knowledge about stuff, I, um, you know, I don't know if I, if I had that knowledge, I don't know if I would be that modest.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, you know, the, in the connection and really to maybe summarize and round up, Around uh, up our discussion on computational law is ultimately to realize that these technologies have great potential and they should be used. And I don't think that they shouldn't be used. I think that you know I'm definitely not a person who believes that all oh, you know just let's close our eyes and ears and you know doesn't exist. It is it exists, and why shouldn't we use it? But we need a to be aware of all of these limitations that are out there and B, in context of law truly really transform also our education and and how we use the law from this very memorization-based what, how, when, what the paragraph is saying and so on to actually be able to apply and argue. And this arguability, even though it argued with you, right? Because it fairly well gave you some argument. Maybe it did not really persuade you. It might have given you the arguments, but wouldn't be able to persuade you. And I think that this is where actually good lawyers come in. So, yes, I do think that a lot of, let's say, mediocre students with the help of ChatGPT can go through some of the exams, but not in a real-life application.
0: Which is kind of encouraging in a way, right? If if ChatGPT is able to remove a substantial amount of mediocrity and... uh in the, the work human beings do, that would actually bring a lot of uh, quality to to people's work. Like, people could use it as a tool to make sure that on some things they are not necessarily comfortable with or not very good at, they could be a little bit better than mediocre. That would already be pretty good um, output, I think. But... Um, Yeah, this has been uh, a long conversation about uh, computational law and I wish that you're taking something out of this uh, podcast. It was definitely fun for us to prepare and record for it. Um, Please keep on following our activities. Uh, We have some new blogs that are out and also... Always organize events. So keep in touch. Like, follow us on Spotify, other platforms and LinkedIn and Instagram also. Uh, So yeah, we'll be in touch and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: This is Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and your favorite podcast platform.